It's April 8th, 2007, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. It's great to have you back. Today's guest is Jim Harrington. And Jim's work is work that I've been familiar with over the years. I've seen his portraits published in in various magazines, and I've always had a long admiration for the quality of the work, though I never associated a particular name with, with the work. And it just so happens that Jim is a fan of the show and sent me an email commenting and then complimenting me on the show. And I finally had the opportunity to tie the images that I admired with the photographer who created them. And in talking with him, I realized that he was definitely a guest that I wanted to add to the long list of photographers that I've interviewed over the last year. And what I like about Jim's work is not just that they're great portraits and or even exceptionally black and white um, renderings of some of the some of the best musicians in, in in the country, but I really love his sense of story and his sense of place. Two terms that are often not used in in describing portraiture, but you will definitely get a sense of that in looking looking to his images. And I also think Jim's Jim's story is a particularly interesting one. So um, that's all I have to say right now. So why don't you sit back and enjoy our conversation with Jim Harrington. Jim, thank you for joining us on the Candid Frame. I'm I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Welcome. Hello and good morning. I'm on two cups of coffee. Well, you two two more than me this morning. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't get out of the bed without a cup of coffee. Oh yeah. Well, first off, I want to talk to you about your beginnings. I thought it was. Uh, you had an interesting uh, uh, story about, I think, when we were 11 years old in terms of um, getting a photograph of a, a famous band leader. Why don't you tell us about that and and um, and, and how music has ended up playing a big role in your work? Well, uh, I think I was 12, by the way, when that picture happened. Not 11, but uh, there was a lot of music around the house growing up my mom and dad both were uh huge music fans dad was more of the jazz and big band but also bluegrass not as much country which is kind of curious and then my mom was big r&b soul motown and uh some rock and roll so a lot of music around and dad loved benny goodman and turned me on to it uh 1938 live at Carnegie Hall record was uh, the first thing I remember just really loving, like you know, just being five years old, four years old, and listening to the Gene Krupa solo and Sing 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 just blew my mind. And so, uh, you know, I end up being 12 years old, and Dad says Benny Goodman's coming to town. You want to go? I said, of course. And I had had my first camera, which was uh, my first, you know, decent camera, which was a Pentax K1000, and uh, and a roll of black and white film, <laughs> Tri-X. And we went to see Benny at the uh, Charlotte, North Carolina Civic Center, 
And, uh, you know, it was just like 300 people there, maybe. I don't even, maybe less. And me and Dad were on the front row, I remember. And Benny was on this little stage. And during the show, I kind of, you know, I'd never done this before. I felt like I might get arrested, like literally go to jail. But I, I stood up and went to the side of the stage and shot four frames, maybe five, went back to my seat. And, um, that was it. And, uh, actually met Benny Goodman after the show. And he wasn't very nice to me, which I always think about. How could you be mean to a little 12 year old boy who's mm. a fan? But, uh, he, he wasn't impressed. Anyway, I put that roll of film in a drawer and forgot about it for years. I don't know why, but it's just, you know, it's 12 years old. And I ended up in, uh, junior high school, ninth grade, and um, had a photography class. And they let us, uh, you know, develop our own film. And I developed the film. And, you know, you're supposed to wash the film for 30 minutes in 68-degree water. And I thought, oh, I'm smarter than that. I bet I can do it for 10 minutes in 100-degree water and <laughs> save myself some time. <laughs> Well, if anybody knows anything about film out there, they know that the emulsion about boiled off of it, reticulation. And uh, But there were images there, and I, I printed them as best I could back then, and they were horrible prints. And then that was it. And then time went on, and I did all my travels and started doing all this music stuff that I've done, and I started thinking, God, if I... If I had those negatives, I would, you know, how cool to have that Benny Goodman shot, you know, my first music shot. Mm. But I couldn't find them. They were lost. Couldn't find the negatives anywhere. And uh, finally, they did turn up in the bottom of a box. Uh, I was a much better printer by then and actually got some really good prints. And that's the story of my Benny Goodman shot. Cool. Later on, uh, I guess you you you. you Tried to study at, uh, I guess, at, a, at an art school, photography school, but then you kind of passed up on that and came to Los Angeles and started working for a printer. And you have a great story about um, working for the printer of Gary Winogrand's uh, work. Um, Tom Consilvio, who was a master printer, fantastic printer, guy from Boston, who uh, was uh, good friends with Gary used to drive him around while Gary took photos and printed his stuff for years. Uh, I don't know how long, must have 10 or 15 years maybe, I don't know. But uh, he printed the stuff from the public relations book and I think stock photographs and lots of his prints for a long time. And uh, somebody told me to go and see this guy when I first moved to L.A. And I went in there and, uh, you know, was basically running film and sweeping the floor, just a you know a low level grunt job. Mm-hmm. But um, Winogrand had died, and um, Tom was starting to process all his film for the ultimately what would be the Museum of Modern Art retrospective. But if you know Winogrand, his thing was shooting a lot of film and not processing it for like a year until a year later. So you could have a very uh, objective view of what he shot, and so after he died, there were kind of there must have been hundreds, 
hundreds of rolls in his widow's uh, freezer. So I would go over there with Tom and get this film and bring it back to the lab, and uh, I would process Winogrand's film. And, you know, I, I was a huge Winogrand fan, so to see his, be the first to see all these, uh, and I would make the contact sheets to see that, you know, be the first to see all these things come up was a big thrill. Mm-hmm. What, what did you feel like you were learning at that, at that time? Because oftentimes when people take on apprenticeships, they're usually doing it with, you know, uh, a photographer, not so much a, a printer. And I'm wondering what sort of, how did that help develop your, your, your style or, or your eye, as well as you know, having the opportunity to look at Gary's work to, to, to this extent? Well, it is a good question because it's the last thing I thought I would ever do is work in a lab printing for somebody else, you know. But... I was young and poor and green, and that was the first job that came my way, so I took it. But um, I learned a lot, you know. For one thing, if you look at anybody's body of work, whether it be just a portfolio or, you know, what hangs in a museum wall, you see the greatest hits. You see all their great stuff, and, you know, even if you're experienced, you get this sort of feeling that god they, all they do is shoot great pictures but you know, developing gary's work you know i saw roll after roll of um well i don't even want to i don't even want to say that because it's, it would be up to gary who's no longer with us to look at these contact sheets and edit but you know you saw that he shot a lot of stuff and um he knew what he was doing you know he was shooting and it was so much about editing for him because he would dive in and it was like breathing. It was just inhale, exhale, and just suck in pictures and spit them out. And, uh, you know, he knew there would be a lot of dogs in there, and of course there were. But it was interesting for me to see all the roll after roll of the dogs, and then these great ones would show up. Mm. And from Tom Consilvio, he was, uh, this sounds like such a basic bit of advice, but it always stuck with me because... And maybe I knew it at the time, but to hear someone say it, you know, I hadn't been around any real super talented people in the photo world yet at my age at that point. But, you know, he was a a very gruff guy, Tom. But one day I said, you know, you need to really teach me how to print. And he said, "Uh, what's there to teach? You know, you make it darker, you make it lighter. The question is, is knowing, or the... You know, the thing is, is to know what it's supposed to look like. Mm. It sounds really simple, but it's so true. You know, so much, there's so much wrapped up in technique nowadays and always. People get wrapped up in technique, but there's something away from that, and it's knowing how things are supposed to be and what, what you're going after, what things are supposed to look like either in a subjective or objective way. Well, I, I wonder how that how, how that sort of translates in terms of the images that, that you make, because, you know, I really I really love the work. I mean, they have a really sort of Thank you. strong... They have a really strong sense of place. There is, the, the portraits are as much about the setting as they are, are the people. And um, But I wonder how about in, in an age where so many 
portraits of celebrities or musicians or performers are so preconceived. It seems like you create images that seem almost as if they were just found. And how much of that sort of preconception, you know, plays plays into the the making of the of these images? Well, I can certainly go out and do the um, you know, the the uh, the crass publicity, sh- you know, shoot for the money when it's required, but you know, to me, this is, uh, you know, the stuff on my site that you're seeing and the stuff that I choose for people to see of my work is the stuff that matters to me. And it's it's all driven by stories. Um, sometimes I call it documentary portraiture. But, um, you know, it's it's real people with real lives that interest me. I mean, even, you know, the glossy publicity shot, you know, is a real person. But... Um, you know, I'm turned on by things. It's not, you know, you see some other things on my website that are not people, they're places and things. Mm-hmm. But it's all stuff that has stories and things that I get a kick out of. And um, it's, uh, I don't know, I try not to question it too much, really. Um, I'm just going after an honest thing. Yeah, you have to a me, great... An honest, you have a great image of, of, like, like you said, a lot of your images kind of evoke a, a, a story or the question of what's of what's happening beyond, you know, just a a, a good reproduction of of a person's appearance. But um, like the image of John Doe that you shot in Lockwood Valley, tell me about the the making of that shot because it's just a fantastic image. Is that the one uh, with the dog? Yeah, yeah. He's sitting in the rubble. Lucy. It's uh, little Lucy, the dog. Uh, I was actually shooting um, his album cover a couple years ago. We'd become friends, but he, uh, he needed a record cover. and So I went up to where he lived, north of Los Angeles, and um, we just rode around. Um we uh, drove over to Bakersfield, and we drove through the mountains around there, uh, the Tehachapis, and we were just riding around, talking and shooting, like I like to do, you know, not to make a big deal out of it, and just just shoot. Two people out shooting, and he had mentioned there was this collapsed building down on this country road near his house. And we just rode over there with Lucy, his dog, and uh, shot. I try not to be too preconceived um, about things. You know, I like to show up and let them happen, which can be hanging it out there sometimes. Mm -hmm. But for what I do and the the kind of pictures I like, it, it seems to work the best if I don't try to preconceive. And sometimes I get nervous if I have a big shoot and... You know, I got to really deliver all this stuff, and I'll sit there and make sketches and think of all these ideas to do, but mm-hmm. I never do them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go out and I do what I do, which is just shoot. How considering some of these people are are, are photographed a lot, you know, and uh, how what's what's the kind of response you get sometimes to people who ask you, okay, what are we going to do? And you go, well, we're just going to go out and sort of fine stuff because um, a lot of you know a lot of people particularly performers can be fairly insecure in terms of how they're how they're rendered and sort of 
you know, completely having no concepts of what may happen may may maybe a little bit intimidating for them or or is it? Well, I think it goes both ways. I think some people, um, you know, that have done it a lot probably notice right off the bat that they're not being um, propped up on a stool with their arm stuck here on their hip, you know. And I'm sure they notice it's like, oh, this guy's not molding me like a piece of clay. And maybe sometimes they wonder, like, I wonder if this guy knows what he's doing. But uh, a lot of these people I, I love talking to, so it's been very few times when things have gone bad, but usually I have a pretty good rapport. I, I like talking to people, and hopefully they've seen my work before this happens, and I think usually they end up being pretty comfortable with it, and I think they like it because it's definitely a uh, usually a non-stress situation working with me, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it- Usually when you're creating some of these images, are you working, you know, pretty minimally in terms of you and maybe an assistant or just you or how is, because it looks like it's just the impression I get from these photographs is that you just go out with the, with the, you know, with the person and go out and find a location and shoot. And I think that your, like you said before, your technique is pretty invisible, which I think is, is great, but I really wonder um, in terms of what's in the background in, in making many of these images? Uh, it almost always is just me and them. Um, I seldom use an assistant. I will if it's, you know, if it's uh, just feels like I need it, if it, there's going to be a whole lot of carrying around of equipment. But, um, and usually that's what an assistant is for me as a pack mule, it's just somebody to help me carry bags. But, I'm pretty self-contained. It's the way I like it, and you know, you see the pictures I take. They're, they're. Um, I don't want to get too mystical about it, but you know, there is. It is about an interaction and uh, hanging out and getting these moments. That I, I think, if you have five people behind you and you know, a very preconceived setup thing, it's harder to get. Yeah. Now I can do that stuff. You know, I. I I shoot advertising and I, I do big publicity shots for big celebrities and then you got to have that you know machine behind you sometimes that just for because that's the way it works but if I can have my way I try to get my way <laughs> <laughs> to be as uh you know sort of minimal as possible Tell me about the shot uh portrait of Billy Show uh Shaver the one I guess it's in a in the church. You, you've heard the recent news about him, haven't you? Mm, no. He, uh, <laughs> he, uh, well, this is like brand new news. He, uh, some drunk with a knife followed him out of a bar yesterday, and Billy Joe shot the guy in the face with a gun. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> really? He's, they're still looking for Billy Joe, so that's the update <laughs> on Billy Joe. <laughs> But uh, to go back to Billy Joe Shaver, that was, um, you're talking about the shot with his fingers up in the air? Right, yeah. His missing fingers. That was at Willie Nelson's ranch uh, in Luck, Texas. And Willie and Billy Joe go way back. And Willie let us use his ranch to shoot at. And that was for an album cover. And again, it was me and Billy Joe 
just wandering around this town that was built for the movie Redheaded Stranger, the Willie Nelson movie from the 70s, mm-hmm. and they built this little cowboy town, just, you know, a little two-block-long on Willie's huge ranch. This You know, it's a little cowboy town, and it's functional. You can, you know, it's not just storefronts. You can walk in the bar, and it's all dressed out, but it's kind of lonely and windswept, and it was just a fabulous location. So we went out there and just wandered around, shot pictures, and this little chapel was at the end of the street. And that's where we shot that shot. Hmm. You shoot a lot of stuff that ends up on, on the album covers of a, a lot of musicians. And what's what's the sort of... Um, how, you know, because you're, you're primarily working for for the uh, the the music company in, in respect to the production of these images. Are they pretty much um, saying, okay, this is the kind of shot that we need for this album cover. This is the the vision we have for it, and we need you to to shoot it. Or do they just say, just go out and yeah. give us some stuff? How how does that work? Well, about five percent, maybe ten percent of the time, they dictate it like that but you know i think these people see my work and i you know i think they can tell that this is not the kind of thing where you know it needs to be super art directed but i think they can tell i'm the guy to turn loose with mm-hmm. you know when they want something really staged they probably just don't call me <laughs> i guess <laughs> Occasionally they do, but more often I think they realize I'm the guy that goes out and sort of free, you know, unfettered and and does these photos. Even with Dolly, you know, the Dolly Parton stuff and Willie Nelson, it was like that, you know, even these big shoots. Uh, Well, actually, Dolly, that's different. That, That was a huge production. But with Willie, we just met up in the mountains and wandered around in the woods together all day. And those shots of, of Dolly, uh, Dolly Parton, are, are just really wonderful. There's a wonderful um, casualness and a lot of, just a lot of fun with it, which I think has always been a, a, a strong part of her personality and her, and her persona, which you really capture very, very wo- uh, wonderfully in, the, in those photographs. Well, she's the sweetest, coolest, smartest just most fantastic woman I've ever met. She has got it going on every level. But, you know, you see her talking and stuff, and that is, that is the, her personality, and it really is. But when I got that job, you know, I was looking back through her last few album covers, and they were very stiff. You know, they had these airbrushed butterflies on the cover, and, you know, she was in a studio, very lit, and just very cinched up in her corset. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, again, I wanted to do my thing, and she actually sought me out. She found me somehow, and we met. And um, and, and this was a kind of a, the first one I did. I shot two covers, but the first one was her kind of going back to her Roots record after some, you know, the, some of her big kind of huge, big production records that she had done. So, you know, she's smart. She got it. She knew I was probably the person to kind of shoot this more rustic, loose kind of thing. And, uh, boy, we had a blast together. She is a lot of fun. Well, it really comes across in, in the images there. 
Um, what I really like about your site, as I told you before we started interviewing, is that I really love the site. But what I really dig is the fact that you include some stories behind the images on there. Um, and some of them are just some great, great stories. And it's always great to sort of have a context um, of the you know, the story behind the image. Um, tell me about the idea for that in, in respect to... Um, to to you know the design of of the website, and it, tell me a bit more of that of that shot of Charlie Rich. You have a great story about you guys going out drinking and, and fishing. Well, uh, again, stories. Uh, you know, I can't stress how important the the story is, and and these things that interest me to to photograph the people and the you know these artifacts these things and then these places um there's always a story behind it and i kind of battled with myself wondering if uh should i just let the images you know i'm a photographer should i just let the images be and let them be whatever they may and people figure out what they want to figure out about them but it's like no some of these stories are like the betty davis cigarette mm-hmm. you know to anybody just looking, it just looks like a snubbed-out cigarette, but actually it's Betty Davis's cigarette, and there's a whole story behind it. So, I, yeah, I felt the need to uh, get some of those stories out, just because, you know, I think they're fantastic, personally, and I hope other people would. But Charlie Rich, um, a huge Charlie Rich fan since I was little, and uh, when I first moved to Nashville, uh, my very first job was to go to Memphis and shoot him, which just was fantastic to me. And uh, I did go to Memphis and photograph him and went home. And uh, in this little brazen bit of self-promotion, I sent uh, Bill Bentley at Warner Brothers Records some of the pictures I did. And he loved them, and he said, would you go back to Memphis and, and do some publicity shots for this new album he's doing? I said, wonderful. So I went back to Memphis and, you know, we did some photos around uh, Charlie's house. And, you know, he was, uh, he liked to have a few beers. And uh, he had had a few and just said, oh, this isn't fun. Let's uh, let's go fishing. You want to go fishing? I said, yeah, where are we going? He said, Colt. Colt would be Colt, Arkansas, where he was born and where he still has this tiny shack that. I think it was his uncles or his family's. I don't know. It's a little, just a little place. So we got in his car and, and went out there and stopped and got a trunk full of beer and went to the shack, got the old Jeep running and took his old Jeep up into this hill. It's the highest point in Arkansas, which is probably only 400 feet above sea level. But that's where we went to this little pond and, uh, we fished, and I took pictures, and we drank and fished and drank and fished. And uh, so, you know, we're both getting kind of stewed, frankly. And uh, I say, well, look, I, I got to let's go for this one more, one more picture. And uh, there was this little outcropping, kind of a not even a cliff, but you know, it was pretty high, a little protuberance, and. Uh, <laughs> kind of got him out on it and uh well he almost fell off the thing he did the big whoa whoa and fell on his butt 
very close to the edge of the cliff, and we decided that was it for the day. So. Yeah, sounds like a good time to stop. <laughs> we went back to the shack, and um, yeah, we'd been in the hot sun all day, and just, you know, God, I don't know how much beer we had, but I'm um, sitting on the couch, kind of like half dozing, and Charlie comes out with a big scarf around his neck, and he's just in his tidy whitey underwear. <laughs> And I kind of see him backlit by the lamps, very dim in the living room. He kind of walks out, and I kind of see this profile. Just He's wearing nothing but his undies and his scarf around his neck. <laughs> and he takes this big swig of the beer. I see kind of profile. And then he goes over to the Wurlitzer and sits down and just starts playing this amazing late-night soul jazz, Charlie Rich style. And... I went to sleep hearing that. Mm. Well, there's an image in, in in your website that's not a not a portrait, but I think this. I really I looked at this and then I said I got to learn where the story behind this one is, and it's an image of Jacques Cousteau's Oscar, in which I think it looks like a, it's a hotel room or something like that, and I think it's just a wonderful shot. Just the the contrast of this sort of iconic you know figure uh, in this sort of haphazard uh, hotel room with uh, clothing and an iron and a hanger hanging from the curtain. Um, it, it, it it has some of the characteristic humor that I see in a, in a lot of your images, but tell, tell me about that. Hmm. Well, it's... Um, that is his Oscar. And it is in Paris. It's actually in his old offices that he had in the fifties, uh, um, which is now an apartment where his uh, granddaughter lives or lived. I don't think she's there anymore. But um, it's his nineteen fifty-six Oscar for *The Silent World* that he won, and uh, Alexandra Cousteau, who had befriended when I was in Paris mm-hmm. and um, sort of some top secret stuff about this Oscar. I'm not sure if I can divulge everything. Um, she did show me these fantastic, uh, speaking of photographs, um, Jacques Cousteau, before he started making films and when he was uh, in the service and he traveled all over the place in the Navy was doing these photographs and she had these leather bound volumes of these beautiful photographs that Jacques Cousteau had taken when he was a young man. And they were really incredible and like, uh, easily could be a wonderful coffee table book. And, uh, she was showing me all these things and she said, yeah, I've got his Oscar too. I said, are you serious? So she brought it out and, um, that's just in her, bedroom or living room or maybe it was a combination kind of a lofty it was his old offices that she was living in mm. so it was sort of converted there's more to the story that i can't tell no it's it's okay but it's it's a great it's a great shot um you shoot a lot uh with uh with four by five and i'm wondering about the choice to do that and how do you feel it um it 
affects your, particularly working with with portraits with with people, as opposed to working with uh, another format like you know thirty five millimeter. Well, um, you know, whenever I decide to use the four by five, it's you know there's whatever I decide I want to do it. I, I tell the people this is like going to the dentist when you get your teeth x-rayed and they put the thing and you bite down and you can't move. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go in the other room and I'm going to click it and then I'm going to come back and pull the things out of your mouth. I said, it's going to be a lot like this. It's going to be very slow, very deliberate. And, you know, I'm always shooting just wide open with these lenses and never stop down because I'm always in very low light and it seems like my whole life happens in low light <laughs> and uh some people most people really dig it you know i mean and especially nowadays in the digital world but even 10 years ago um well most of these people just weren't, weren't used to it so they find it extremely novel that i'm behind this wooden camera with a black sh- you know sheet over my head and uh it can be trying. It can be very trying. You know, sometimes it's just not working, then you just have to put it aside and get the Hasselblad out or something. But mm-hmm. a lot of people really dig it. I wonder how it just sort of translates, because when you were talking earlier, how it's, you know, everything is sort of um, extemporaneous in terms of your discovery of a, of a shot and the setting for, for a subject. And I... How does that sort of jive with what you're doing with with the four by five? Because you have to be a lot more um, conscious of what you are intending to do, rather than just yeah. being sort of in, impulsive about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not super impulsive. I mean, it seems that way. I, I, it is sort of. It does probably look like I'm loose and impulsive, but there is sort of a method to my madness, even when I'm going loosey-goosey with a 35 or, or something. There is, you know, I'm definitely looking for something. Mm-hmm. But the 4x5 is just, um, you know, maybe it's looking a little harder. Um, you know, these, like the Merle Haggard photo on my website. Um, well, there's something about 4x5 I like, and most people probably think I shoot a big negative because it makes everything that much sharper and that much more detailed and that's not really it to me the four by five um there's a tonality thing that happens with the four by five and uh it's not all about sharpness it's the way the tones lay and the way uh, a print looks when it's made from it and i don't really use great lenses i'm not like a fanatic about I have to have Schneiders and Rodenstocks. Um, I kind of like these old, uncoated lenses sometimes. Mm, yeah. And again, it's not necessarily trying to be vintage or, or going for anything like that either. It's just, um, it keeps it from being that 4 by 5 perfect thing. I'm, I'm looking at for the tones, the way the tones lay on a big negative. It is because of the lack of grain, but it's not... I'm not going for lack of grain, but when you have the lack of grain, the way the tones hold together and they fall off, and I shoot wide open a lot, and a lot of things go out of focus, and uh, hard to explain. It's just the look that it has. Well, in all your images, you make you make great use of of shadow, you know, and a lot of the images that we see today are so so overly lit 
in, in my opinion. Sometimes it's like shadows seem to be like the thing people want to avoid. But, you know, I think that you, you play with a wonderful balance of, of, of highlight and shadow. And I'm, I'm curious to hear about how you see that not only when you're shooting, but when you're reproducing the images either on, on paper or when they're destined for for the web. But in terms of how do you sort of envision it and, and try to bring that out when you're reproducing them? I'm a shadowy guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, you know, when you first start off in the dark room, I think everybody is, they're afraid of making dark prints. I think almost always a beginner printer, their prints are anemic. They're almost always too light. And um, I think, you know, I first started just like, oh, make it darker, you know, make it rich. There's, I don't know, I, I see this with a lot of people, and it was true with me when I first started. There's some sort of uh, scaredy cat thing about really getting it inky, getting those uh, blacks nice and inky. Um, there's a certain epicness I like. Um, I love shadows. I love all those tones, and, and, you know, you can't get that with an anemic print. And... Um, how are you finding because I, I read that you recently invested in an, in an inkjet printer how how are you finding that especially considering your your experience creating prints traditionally well it's a it sure is a big learning curve and I'm still kind of hating it um, and loathing the fact that uh, you know the darkroom days are disappearing I mean it was only so much has changed so fast, as you know. Um, I mean, just six years ago, people used to just rave about my prints. You know, I'd send my, the prints to a magazine or whoever, and it's like, oh, Jim, we love your prints. You send us the most beautiful prints. Overnight, it went to, oh, you're going to send us prints? So <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened to the beautiful prints you loved? It's like, well, can't you just send us a file? That's what everybody wants now. So, you know, like everybody else, whether you want to or don't, you got to learn this technology. And um, I'm starting to figure it out. You know, the last few years I've made pretty good strides with um, learning how to do this. And um, I haven't been working in the darkroom the last few years. I'm still shooting film all the time. And... Um, but, you know, Photoshop is, is kind of amazing. It's a very uh, intuitive thing, and, it, and they designed it so well. And I use it like the darkroom, the burning and dodging and the, and the things. They, they work so well that, um, you know, it's not as sexy as the darkroom, that's for sure. And I hate sitting down at a computer. And it just really, I don't like the hands-offness of it all, but... You gotta adapt, and that's what I'm trying to do. And I think you know my pictures are looking about the same, you know, overall. And I don't think, you know, I'm still wanting to get what I always wanted to get, which is, you know, the pictures that you see. And I'm just trying to learn how to use this modern technology to make it look like the darkroom prints I always made. What kind of system are you using for, you know, um, 
all your you know all your archive of images in terms of converting them over digitally and all that can be quite a quite a chore um are you doing that yet or and if so what what's what's your process been in in respect to that oh my god it's daunting you know i've got this gigantic four foot wide five foot tall file cabinet that is uh i can't get another negative in it. it's just full and you know i'm trying to go through and and make really good scans of things and um i started doing that a few years ago but now you know the scanning technology is so much better so i've <laughs> started again it's um <laughs> excuse me it's daunting you know I, I look through there and it's like i could spend the rest of my life only working on what i've already done and if i don't ever take another picture I could just be an archivist and like archive my collection. <laughs> but you know, at the same time, um, if I were to go in the dark room and do that, it would even take twice as long. Yeah. yeah. And the, you know, the money spent on paper and chemicals. Um, even though I find working in Photoshop, I spend about as long making a, a good image as I did in the dark room. You know, I spend hours and hours on one image. And, you know, that's what I used to spend in the darkroom. And the good thing about Photoshop is once you get that image, then you can reproduce it. That's that's a, definitely a big plus. Um, you, you photograph a lot of musicians, and a lot of them are people that you, you're fans of their music. Are there any uh, artists out there who you've not photographed who you really would love to? Absolutely. A long list that'll keep me busy the rest of my life. Uh, I've, you know, Bob Dylan, uh, absolutely, Bob, if you're listening. <laughs> Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, who I've shot live, and I've met him, but I, I really uh, want to do Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, endless, you know, so many of the great soul R&B country early rock and roll i'm like sort of interested in some modern people but it's really these greats legends proven heroes of mine and, and they're dying like there's so many people i've missed because they died before i could do them so mm. there's a clock ticking and i'm sort of obsessive about trying to get to these people and a lot of them are famous and a lot of them aren't a lot of them are just completely unheard of and living in obscurity that's wonderful when you have the opportunity you know to capture them you know as you do in, in, in some of the images on your site well so many of the, these pictures are me just you know spending my own money getting on an airplane and flying somewhere calling them up arranging it myself just purely for myself but it kind of feeds my career. Um, you know, I'm known as the guy to go shoot these kind of people because I've seen them in my book. So, you know, for every guy I do on my own, then I get a Willie Nelson album cover to shoot. And then on the strength of the Willie shot, I get to shoot somebody else. And, you know, it's half and half. Half of these are for pay and for jobs. And, you know, there's so many of them that I've done just for the for my diary scrapbook. 
Well, the way I always end the, the show, as you know, is that I ask uh, a photographer to suggest another photographer for the listeners to check out. So who would that be for oh, you and why? Oh, gosh. Oh, where to start? I wish I would have known this uh, or remembered. Um, well, I'm a huge Lee Friedlander fan. Uh, a fan. Uh, I'm sure most people probably know who he is, but if you don't, Lee Friedlander, who's had a pretty remarkable career, uh, really varied career. Um, he was sort of lumped in with Gary Winogrand and Diane Arbus back in the 60s, but he's just... Uh, He's the one that's still alive, and he, he's he did this incredible body of music work. Um, he was the staff photographer for Atlantic Records in the '60s, and I can't think of a better job on the planet to have than that time and place in record company. But he did his urban street stuff for years. Um, he's done these really quirky nudes. He's uh, and then he switched gears uh, 10 or 15 years ago and did these desert landscapes. And, uh, you know, he shot for his whole life on a Leica, mm-hmm. um, horizontal. I mean, it seemed like his whole 30 years was one lens, one camera. And then he suddenly got a Hasselblad and shot these uh, desert landscapes in Arizona with a square format. And it was just radically different and yet completely Friedlander. I think he reinvented the landscape in a way, the way those prints were made and his approach to it. So there's a lot of people I could name, but let's just say Lee Friedlander. That's an awesome recommendation. Well, thanks, Jim. It's been a real pleasure having the opportunity to interview you you and and have a chance to talk to you about your work. Is it over? I'm just waking up. I appreciate it, too. Thank you very much. That was great. Well, thank you again for joining me for another episode. If you have any comments or suggestions, email me at thecandoredframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandoredframe.com. Till next time, this is Ivarian X. Perella, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at photocastnetwork.com. photocastnetwork.com.